Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. How are you? Let's go. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you have a Bible, open it to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. If you're using one of our chair Bibles, you can find that on page 671. We're working our way through a series of messages through the first book to the first letter to the Corinthians, and we're, uh, we're in the middle of chapter 4 today. As you're finding it, I hope that you have uh, sensed today, if you are a guest with us or visiting for the first time, that we see Sunday mornings when the people of God gather as a, a beautiful combination of gladness and gravity. We want to come and worship and take joy and delight in the God of our salvation. And we want to laugh and sing and clap our hands and hug one another and, and have this warmth of the Holy Spirit that fills this room in our hearts. But yet also it is, it's tethered, it's anchored to a gravity and a seriousness as we contemplate and think about the Scriptures and what Christ has done for us. And we make many references to how God rescues sinners. And we sort of say that with the assumption that he has done that, but in reality, in your life, he may not have. And so today, as we come together on the first Sunday of the month, it is our custom to receive communion together as a church family. Many churches do this differently. Sometimes they restrict it to just members of the church, and other times they just open it up to anybody. We take sort of a middle position there. We believe that this table that we will partake of is for people that are believers in Jesus, for Christians. You don't have to be a member of this church, but we think that you should be a believer in Jesus. And so at the end of my message today, when I'm going to talk about Jesus and talk about suffering in the life of a Christian, know that everything is pointing to Christ and what he has done for us. That's our goal today, is to see and savor Jesus and to behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and to worship Him and to be transformed into His image or to be rescued for the very first time. And so that is where we're going. And so as we prepare our hearts to open up this Word, I pray that we would come to the table of the Lord and come to the Word of God with an unusual and beautiful combination of gladness and gravity. So if you have a Bible in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, in just a moment I'm going to read it. But before I do that, let me just say it's great to have my parents from uh, the country of California. They're actually sitting down there by Jennifer. They came in. They've been with us all week. They came in Tuesday night, and it was raining. The Atlanta airport was closed, and so they got diverted to Birmingham. Then they finally got into Atlanta, they, and they had to clear customs um, coming from an, But um, they, they are here and with us, and it was just a joy to be able to watch football with my dad all weekend or, or last night. And um, we didn't really even have a dog in that fight, but we were getting excited, yelling at the kid for dropping a touchdown. It was, it was great. It was awesome. Um, and uh, as, we, as today, as, as I mentioned, we're going to be speaking about, uh, about suffering and about the role of suffering in the life of a Christian. And uh, one of the things that we want to do here is to put in your hands good resources, resources and books that that have good theology, not fluff and sort of man-centered garbage, which is prevalent in Christian retail these days. 
And um, there's a couple books that we're going to have, Lord willing, in a couple weeks, those glass doors that have always been sort of darkened out in the morning, we're going to have a resource room there where we just sell books at face value that we buy or just give them away if you can't afford them. But one book uh, that I really want to recommend to you is a book by Randy Alcorn, who is a gift to the church uh, worldwide. He's an author and pastor. Uh, He has written a book called The Goodness of God, Assurance of Purpose in the Midst of Suffering. This is sort of an abridged version of his much larger book, which is called If God is Good, and that's a big book, but he's written kind of a condensed version of it. Randy Alcorn has written many great books. If you see a book that's written by Randy Alcorn, trust it and buy it. He's written a book called Heaven, which is one of the most beautiful and encouraging books on heaven that I've ever seen. He's also uh, involved in in a a pro-life ministry. But his, this little book is called The Goodness of God, Assurance of Purpose in the Midst of Suffering. Is there anybody that, um, was Antonio, Antonio, he, he, he had his trigger ready. That's for you, Antonio. Um, and there's another book here I think you guys are well aware. If you've been around Crosspoint for a while, you know the impact that John Piper has had on my life. He's a pastor in Minnesota, Bethlehem Baptist Church. Um, has really become from afar sort of a father in the gospel to me, his preaching and his teaching really opened me up to God-centered theology, and, uh, and I just have a tremendous amount of respect for this man. Uh, and he has written many, many books. Again, if you see a book by John Piper, I encourage you to read it. I will tell you this, though. If you read a book from Piper, um, it's not fluff, man. It's not something that sits on the coffee table that you pick up every now and again. If you're going to read a book from Piper, um, you know, get a good night's sleep and you know, protein up, get some carbs in you, and be ready to chew on that, baby, because it's a steak. It's hard. It's it's It's... it's it's God-centered reading. And uh, for people like us that just grow up on candy bars spiritually, it can be difficult at the beginning. But he has written a book called Spectacular Sins and Their Global Purpose and the Glory of Christ. And what he does is he takes some of the more notable sins, like the huge sins in the Bible, like Joseph in the Old Testament being sold into slavery and David and Bathsheba and Uh, and Peter's denial of Christ, and then, of course, the crucifixion of the God-man, Jesus. And he shows how, in God's mysterious and beautiful providence and sovereignty, God actually, as we just sang about and heard the team sing about, works his good even in the midst of evil and suffering. This is the most beautiful and well-thought-out exposition of God's providence over evil in just in a short form that I have ever read. It is tremendously encouraging. We'll have it available in the bookstore when we open that thing up, but it's called, we've given it away before, so if you have this, um, um, uh, don't raise your hand, but this is John Piper's Spectacular Sins. Who's going to, Leona, all right, you had your trigger ready. Uh, Chris, can you give that to Leona? Yeah, thank you. Leona, there you go. All right. Well, let me read in First uh, Corinthians chapter 4, and then, uh, well, let me pray first, and then we're going to work our way through this beautiful passage uh, that Paul has written to us. Let's pray together. Lord, as we come to your word, we are deeply humbled. We confess that we're selfish Americans, we're flighty, we're self-absorbed, we're easily knocked off course. We worship man-made idols and trinkets 
and self-esteem. And we desperately need today not to come away with little points about how to live better. We desperately need to see suffering servant Jesus on the cross in his humility and in his victory and in his exaltation and in his sovereign authority over death and sin and suffering. So Father, would you be so kind as to do what only you can do this morning? Would you blow away the dust from the temple's of our hearts. And would you cause Christians in this room to see and savor Jesus and to have their affections stirred for Christ so that we might worship you better. And as a result, we might spread more of an aroma of Christ in our life even when we suffer. And Lord, for those that are in this room who are not yet believers in Jesus, they are not yet born again. They are still dead in their sins, whether they realize it or not. I do pray, God, that you would be so kind as to cause them to be born again by the living and abiding Word of God. I pray, Lord, that the greatest miracle would happen in this room this morning in the hearts of people who do not yet know Jesus, that you would take a dead heart that is lost in sin and self-righteousness and you would bring it to life through the power of your gospel. And I pray all of this for the glory of your name and the good of your people. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Well, we've been working our way through 1 Corinthians. We're in middle through uh, chapter 4. And just to give you a little bit of a catch-up and backdrop and orientation of where we are, remember that the Apostle Paul has been writing to this church that he planted uh, several years before. And they were very gifted people. They had uh, lots of of business and commerce sort of coming through the intersection of this particular town, Corinth. And they were very, very gifted people, but yet they were also very, very selfish people. And so Paul then, after planting this church, has moved on and he's planting other churches in the Roman Empire. And he now hears back from some of his ministry associates about some of the the sin and the self-absorption that exists in the Corinthian church and how this very, very gifted people are starting to miss the heart of the gospel through their, through their selfishness and then through some of the factions and divisions that are developing in the church and then through some of their pride even in their own sin. They're feeling like, hey, we've understood the gospel so well that we can just sort of get away with anything and just grace and just doing what they want to do. In fact, in a couple of weeks, we're going to get into chapter 5 and 6, which deals with with tremendous immorality that's going on in the Corinthian church, and we're going to work through that. Just We're going to pry open that. We're going to see what the Lord would say to us through that. But the Corinthians were haughty, self-righteous, arrogant, prideful people, and Paul now is writing to correct them. He begins the letter, actually, by thanking God for them, which is, which is uh, I think, really striking, that even in the midst of Paul, having many theological bones to pick, so to speak, with the Corinthians, and many, many things to correct them on. He sees them through the lens of grace, 
And he writes in the first nine verses about how grateful he is for the Corinthians. And he can be grateful for them because he's looking at them through the lens of what Christ has done for them. In fact, in the first nine verses of 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he mentions Jesus nine times in those verses. And then he moves on to correct their, their divisiveness and how they were, they were pitting themselves against one another in camps. They were saying, well, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos and I follow Peter or even the super spiritual people said I follow Jesus and so there were these camps developing in the church and so in chapter 2 he orients them to the goodness of Christ and the sovereignty of God and salvation and how wisdom can only be found in Christ and then he begins to make corrections towards their heirs in chapter 3 and then in chapter 4 which is where we are today what he's basically doing now is he is defending his ministry. He's defending the authenticity of his apostleship. And we're going to talk about what an apostle is in just a moment. But basically, when we say apostles, that's capital A. Those are the 12 disciples of Jesus, plus Paul, who then became an apostle because Jesus reappeared to him after his resurrection in Acts chapter 8 and 9. And so what what an apostle is, is it's the first, the 12 early disciples of Jesus who then have this special authority to plant the church and write the Bible. In fact, the whole New Testament, every book in the New Testament comes through is either written by an apostle or is written by one of his ministry associates. And so apostolic authority and the authenticity of that authority is a big thing in the early church. And these Corinthians, because now Paul is correcting them, they're writing him back and they're saying, well, what right do you have to say these things to us? And so he, in these verses that we're going to read today, he's countering this notion that if you're truly blessed by God, that life is going to somehow be prosperous for you here on this earth, that somehow you're going to be healthy and wealthy. And if God's really on your side, then things are going to go your way. And one of the things that the opponents of Paul were saying in the Corinthian church is, is that look at this guy, he's getting in shipwrecks, he's getting, you know, He's getting beat up. He's, he's getting bit by snakes. His crazy stuff's happening to this cat. How can he truly be somebody that, that has Christ and is an apostle? And often Paul is saying to them is that those things that I've been going through actually validate my apostleship. And we see that today in the American church where there's this undercurrent of the health and wealth gospel that often exists in many Pentecostal charismatic circles, although let's be fair, it's everywhere in the church. Just turn on Christian TV, where there's this thought that if God is for you, then you're somehow going to be blessed and life is going to be easy when the balance of scriptures actually go 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And so let's begin reading. We're going to work our way through and stop along the way. There's two things that I think we want to see in this. Number one is the just kind of two overarching thoughts, and then we'll get to a few lists of points in a second. In this, just be looking for this. We're going to see the tragic symptoms of a self-absorbed church, and we're going to see how suffering serves to display God's goodness. We're going to see tragic symptoms of a self-absorbed church, and as a result, try and avoid that in our life as a church, and we're going to see how suffering serves to display God's goodness. All right, let's read verse 8, and we're going to stop after verse 8, actually. Paul says in verse 8, Already you have all you want. He's being sarcastic here. Now, it's, it's kind of hard to think. A lot of times we think the Bible is just written in just, you know, just almost monotone, robotic fashion. But one of, the, I think, the proofs 
for the authenticity of the Bible is, is that God actually works through the personalities of the writers. And I love the fact that Paul mixes sarcasm and seriousness as he corrects the Corinthians. So he says in verse 8, sarcastically, already you have all you want. Already you have become rich without us, meaning the apostles. You have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. What's going on here is Paul is, through his sarcasm, critiquing the Corinthians for their pride. Because what's going on is the Corinthians are, they were, remember they were started, this church was started by Paul, who in his humility is modeling the gospel to them. And with his ministry associates is modeling, modeling the gospel to them. And then he moves on. And then some of the teachers in the Corinthian church begin to value wisdom and prosperity and, and advancement in this Greek philosophical sort of mindset. Remember Sophia, the sophist, that Greek word for wisdom, Sophia. By the way, if your name is Sophia, it's Greek for wisdom. Or if you have a little child and you're thinking of a good name for a girl, a great biblical name would be Sophia. Oh, plus it kind of sounds Italian too. That's an awesome name. But these sophists, these Greek philosophers were these sort of these cultural pundits. They were these talking heads. They were kind of the people that would show up on Fox News and MSNBC, and they were just sort of commentators on the culture. And they had tremendous political and cultural influence. And some of these people then were becoming Christians or coming into the church, and that style of rhetoric, that, that sort of um, esteem of human wisdom was beginning to dominate and overtake the truth and the authority and the simplicity and the humility of the gospel that Paul had originally preached to the Corinthians. And so now they're getting off track into human pride. And one of the things that they were developing was this sense that they were more sophisticated, that they were more intelligent, and that they needed maybe this push by Paul in the early ways of faith, but now they had arrived beyond that. And in their giftedness, they were starting to be self-absorbed and self-reliant. And Paul's writing back to him and saying, oh, 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 you don't even need us anymore. Already you have all you want. Already you have become rich without us. You're kings already. And would that you did reign so that we might even share humbly in this rule with you. He writes to them. And so this brings up for us, I think, a picture into some tragic symptoms of the self-absorbed church. And so I've got a list here of things that I think we see in the Corinthian church and we see in the American church and we must continually be at guard against here in our church at Cross Point. The first is the tragic symptoms of a self-absorbed church is that the Corinthians began to see faith or the gospel as merely a means of self-fulfillment or advancement. This is prevalent in America today. We are the most pragmatic people on the face of the earth, are we not? I mean, we, if it works, implement it. We, we are people that want answers. We get the job done, capitalism, make the product, sell the deal, invent it, patent that puppy, and go, man. We, we are the most powerful and innovative, advanced civilization and country the world has ever known. And, and we are people that are dominated by pragmatism. And when we grow up in that culture, do whatever it takes to win. 
Just win, baby. Just do it. Oftentimes, in our unregenerate state, before we come to Christ, we carry that cultural ideal, which is really a cultural idol, into the faith when we become Christians. And so we come to Christ and we see Christ merely as a means of advancement. And that's why if you go to Christian bookstores, you see a tremendous amount of books that are aimed directly at you and sort of you becoming a better version of you. And although I think that God wants to improve us and certainly coming to faith in Christ improves us and should result in 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 sanctification and, and, and all of these things that we want to be better people, when that becomes sort of the underlining reason why we're coming to faith or why you're coming to church or why you're coming to Christ, what happens is it turns inward and it becomes consumeristic very, very early. And that's what was happening in the Corinthian church is that they were sort of pitting Christianity as just another philosophical system against all of the other Greek philosophical systems of the day and seeing, at is, seeing it as just another means of advance, advancement. And when the gospel becomes merely a pragmatic way to live a better life, it is sucked of its power and the power of the risen Christ is gone when we see the gospel as merely a means of advancement. Secondly, we see in the Corinthian church camps being formed. And division dominating. Remember we read in chapter 1 where there were these people that they were saying, I'm of Paul and I'm of, I'm of uh, Peter and I'm of Apollos, this really eloquent preacher. And even the super spiritual people were saying, I'm of Jesus. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm even of Christ. And what happens a lot of time when a, when a church becomes self-absorbed is as little camps begin to form around all sorts of crazy secondary issues, worship styles, Secondary issues of theology, uh, even just sort of cultural Christian groups, you know, this particular Bible study or this particular author. And I, and I even confess, I must be very, very careful. You guys know where I stand. I, I like those guys like John Piper and Mark Driscoll and Matt Chandler and R.C. Sproul and some of these great nationally known biblical preachers. You guys know that, that I, I like these guys. I like Francis Chan and David Platt and I give out their books and, and, I, and I love to hear preachers make much of God who come from a particular sliver of the theological perspective, perspective. But what can happen a lot of times is we sort of run to our particular subset of Christianity and identify with it more than we identify with Christ. You see it a lot in denominationalism. You ask a person, you know, are you a Christian? Oh, oh yeah, I'm a Baptist. <laughs> no, are you, oh, yeah, I'm a Methodist. Yeah, I grew up in a Pentecostal church or First Presbyterian or Second, my dog is bigger than your dog or whatever. And there's something about the human heart that we often use Christian community to sort of validate our sense of whether we're on the right team. And one of the symptoms of a self-absorbed church is when people begin to identify with a camp more than they identify with Christ. And that's what's happening in the Corinthian church. And as Americans, I think we need to be particularly aware of the fact that we in our culture, are unbelievably susceptible to the cult of personality. 
These, these divisions are often very, very subtle. But they're powerful nonetheless. This is the way it takes sort of root in a church as there's a group of people who are loving the particular ministry of a national leader or a particular point of theology or a particular style of music. And, and unintentionally, they just sort of give off this air that that's kind of where the juice card is. You know, that's sort of where the power flows, man. And that's, that's where it is. And then the Christian that's on the periphery of that, or the person who's not yet a believer in Jesus, begins to learn subconsciously that it is Jesus plus Piper books, or Jesus plus these Bible study conferences, or Jesus plus this certain type of music, or Jesus plus this type of dress, or Jesus plus anything. And the power and the truth and the simplicity of the biblical gospel is that it is Jesus plus Nothing that equals salvation. There's nothing you can add. There's no cultural norm. There's no style. There's no thing that you can add. Black, white, brown, yellow. There's no type of music. There's no preaching style. There's no subset of secondary theological issues that are important enough to add to the cross of Christ and Him crucified and resurrected. That is it. That's all you need. That's our camp. And... That's what's going on in the Corinthians. Yeah, you, yeah, it's a little weak. No, 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 don't do it. You lost it. You lost the moment. Don't. You, you're either there. You know, it's like that kid. You either catch it when you throw it or you drop it. That's the way it is. You might have another opportunity before the message is done. So camps are formed and division dominates. Do you realize the beauty of the gospel should humble us to our need for Christ? And it should cause us to see one another with a deep and utter humility and respect. Thirdly, the symptom that I see of the self-absorbed church in Corinth and in Columbus and in Crosspoint that we must be on guard against is that there's no sense of mission. When we become self-absorbed, we just lose a sense of mission. If you hang around Crosspoint long enough, you'll hear these three words a lot. And they are gospel, community, mission. Gospel, community mission. In fact, it's kind of a, it was a big thing back in the 90s uh, that churches needed to have mission statements. You know, on, and what's your vision? Everybody asked me, what's your vision? You know, I mean, the Bible, that's my vision, Jesus. I, mean, I just never quite understood that question. It always seemed a little self-indulgent to me or whatever. If you're listening to this and you go to a church that has mission statements, that's cool. I like that. I've just never been the guy that can come up with a cool little phrase that seems to look good on a website. But, so our mission is Jesus. But, but these three words... I think really help us clarify what we're doing here. These three words, gospel, community, mission. And that is just sort of shorthand for that we're people of the gospel. We believe that it is Christ alone who saves us, that you must come to faith in him. The gospel is this, that you, every person in this room, is born a sinner. Whether you're a good little church kid, or whether you're a felon that never darkened the door of a church, or whether you're a terrorist that grew up in the Middle East, every person, from Adam and Eve to you and me and every person in this room, every person who's ever been born has been born in sin and rebellion against God. The only person who didn't, uh, who didn't sin was Christ. He's the only perfect righteous one, the God-man who became flesh. So all of us are separated from God and we need to be brought back to God. And the good news of the gospel is that Jesus, God, in his providence, sends Christ to live the perfect life that you and I did not live. All of us have rebelled whether it is in sin or whether it is in self-righteousness, thinking that our morals can make us right with God. And we have all rebelled treasonously against the creator of the universe. 
And Christ himself comes and he lives a life that you and I should have lived but did not live in our rebellion. And he lives a perfect, righteous life, obeying God in every way. And then he lays down his life willingly, allows himself to be killed and crucified by his creation, which have rebelled against him. And then he comes, and what he does on that cross when he lays down his life is he takes the wrath of God, the punishment of God that should be ours on himself, on his shoulders. He absorbs it. He extinguishes it. He satisfies the wrath of God completely for all those that would turn and trust in Him and repent and believe in what Christ has done alone as the sole sacrifice of sin, as the sole substitute for our rebellion against God. And then He rose again in victory over human sin and rebellion and death and all of the consequences of sin. And He now commands all men, all women, all boys, all girls, young and old, to repent and believe and trust in him and so that is the gospel that's the only message of this church and there are a million applications that flow out of it but that's the first word that's our vision is the gospel that you must believe in christ you must turn and trust in christ and you were created to worship him and he must make you alive in order for you to be a christian and then that brings us to the second word which is that when he saves us when he brings us back to life. He puts us into a family, a community, which is the worldwide universal church of God, the people of God who from all time everywhere, who have ever believed in Jesus from every sliver, from every denomination, from every tribe, from every tongue, from every people group. It's this church of the living God. And then that church, capital C, universal, has the expression of local bodies of believers called the local church that gather together. And so it's not, it's not enough to just be saved. You then are joined in a community of people whereby God wants to encourage you and, 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 and to make you more like Him as you rub shoulders with these other pardoned rebels. And then He gives these people, this church, this community, a mission. And that, that mission is not for them to be comfortable. That mission is for them to take this good news of the gospel and live it out so that it might be a display of the gospel to the world around them. And so gospel community mission should be the heartbeat and the vision of every church. The gospel community mission. And when a church becomes self-absorbed, they lose this sense of mission. Somehow or another, all the focus, all the gifting, all the sort of ministry energy begins to turn inward and the people begin to demand programs and ministries for themselves and their children. And they begin to, they begin to get selfish and restless and they want stuff. And they want things to help them grow. And they resist leaders that say, well, now that the gospel has come to you, let's grow in it together, but let's push ourselves out and be people that live as representatives of the gospel in our world. We must be continually on guard for this. I actually think of the two that I've mentioned, faith as merely a means of self-fulfillment, camps and division. I actually think this third one here is the one that we're most susceptible to at Crosspoint, is that there's no sense of mission. We're here. This is Cumberland, Georgia, man. Everybody's everybody's a church on every street corner. Everybody kind of here is basically Christian. We're just... You know, we just got a cool building and, and, and we're kind of hip, so we're just satisfied with it. Friends, if, if we let that happen, then the gospel has dead-ended on us. 
And when Jesus speaks to the churches in Revelation, he has some pretty harsh things to say to churches that have grown lukewarm and cold and selfish. He says, depart. He says, you get out of here. And I pray that he wouldn't say that to us. I pray that continually Christians that come to Jesus and here would not, would not just be satisfied with a Bible study for their demographic or a group that meets around their demographic. Look, we want to minister to one another. We want to grow. We want to, we want to encourage one another. But we don't want that to ever become a cul-de-sac. We don't want the gospel and the good news and what Christ has done for us to ever just sort of dead end on us where we become people that just sort of shuffle off from Christian group to Christian group to fellowship here to Bible study there and we just sort of insulate ourselves from a world that is lost and dying. I mean, you read the early accounts of the apostles and acts and people would get saved and then they'd go out on mission. They'd live their lives as a display and we have run this trick. We have deceived ourselves to think that you need to be some super Christian that's a pastor or a minister or some Bible study leader to think that God might be able to use you in mission in your life as an influence for the gospel in your place in your time. Listen, if, you, if you've been a Christian for seven seconds and you have a pulse, you, God can use you. God can use you. There was another opportunity for you, but you missed it. And one guy, but that was about it. So tragic symptom of the self-absorbed church, faith is merely a means of self-fulfillment or advancement. Camps are formed. Division dominates, and there's no sense of mission. I pray that we would have a sense of mission here, that we wouldn't be people that clamor for Bible studies and groups and potlucks and more children's ministry and rock walls and, you know, better coffee and music that I like. Shorter sermons. You're definitely not getting that. I'll tell you that much right now. <laughs> You're not getting that. I, people say, ah, man, I just go until I run out of stuff to say. That's all I got. I mean, we, we got, we got, we're going to verse 13 today. Buckle your seatbelts. You know, just this thought, me, 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 me. Ah, oh, put us on mission, Jesus. Push us. Make us uncomfortable. Let us see ourselves as people who want to give our lives away for the advance of the gospel. That's a people on mission. And so let's keep reading in verse, in verse 9. Listen to this. Now he takes a turn from sarcastically busting the chops of the Corinthians for their self-absorption into a grave and serious and humble explanation of his life as an apostle. And suffering. This is what he says in verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Contrast this now with sort of the, the, uh, the air of a lot of Christian ministry in America today. Contrast what Paul's about to say. He says, for I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all. Like men sentenced to death. That word sentence in Greek, the original language, means a spectacle, a display in an arena. And probably what Paul has in mind here is the, is the Roman Colosseum that was probably beginning to get cranked up where they would feed Christians to the lions in, this, in these early years after Christ's resurrection. We are last of all like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world. 
to angels and to men. In other words, the Roman legions are dragging us in in the last of the procession into the Colosseum as a spectacle of humility to be chewed up by the wild beasts. And that describes us as apostles, Paul is saying. Listen to how the apostles died. There's 12 apostles. One of them fell out at the end. We're familiar with that story. Judas hung himself as he denied Christ. And then a a substitute willing to fill his spot was chosen in the early chapters of Acts. Acts 1, Matthias. So you have these 12 apostles who are the 12 disciples of Jesus. And then they have this apostolic authority to plant churches and write the scriptures. And then Paul becomes the 13th apostle. And Paul could claim apostolic authority because he saw the risen Christ. And what gave these 12 men authority is that they were with Jesus in his earthly ministry. And they were with the risen Christ after his resurrection when he appeared again after his resurrection. And now Paul can claim the same authority that those 12 apostles did because Jesus appeared to him again in Acts at his conversion. But listen to how, listen to how the 12 apostles died. James, we read in Acts chapter 12, verse 2, that Herod Agrippa killed him with a sword. Eusebius, the early church uh, Christian uh, historian, writes that the executioner saw his courage and how he would not deny Jesus and that he was converted right there on the spot and then he became executed along with James. James, this powerful conviction, he's killed there by Agrippa and then legend has it that his executioner died along with him, realizing his conviction. Peter, Eusebius also records that he was crucified, and legend has it upside down, thinking himself unworthy to die like Jesus. Andrew, Peter's brother, was hung from a tree. Thomas, the doubting Thomas, he was thrust through with a spear, tormented with red-hot plates, and burned alive. Philip, He was preaching to hostile Jews in a region in the Roman Empire where he was tortured and crucified by them. Matthew, the gospel writer and former tax collector who Jesus miraculously saved, who wrote at the end of his gospel, Jesus' words where he said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, was beheaded. Nathaniel, also called Bartholomew, was flayed and crucified. James Another James, also called James the Lesser, who is the head of the Jerusalem church who presides over the council in Acts chapter 15, where we see this early church grappling with the issue of the salvation of the Gentiles. James the Lesser was thrown down from the temple by religious zealots and beaten to death after he was thrown off the roof of the temple. Simon the Zealot was crucified by the governor of Syria, Thaddeus, was beaten to death with sticks. Matthias was stoned while hanging on a cross. Only John, only John, one of twelve, only John dies of natural causes. But he didn't, although he didn't die a martyr's death, he lived a martyr's life. He was exiled to the island of Patmos where he wasted his life or he gave the balance of his life breaking up hard rock there on that that little tiny island where he writes the revelation. And legend has it in early church history that he was thrown into boiling oil. And although it did not kill him, he was severely scarred. And then, of course, the 13th apostle Paul, we know, was beheaded 
in early church history. It's not recorded in the scripture, but early church history tells us that Paul was beheaded by Nero in Rome shortly after he writes to Timothy, First and Second Timothy. And at the end of Acts chapter 28, we see him awaiting trial only to be eventually beheaded by Nero. So these apostles are grabbing hold of this message of Christ and they are like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. So Paul continues. Let's read now 10, 11, 12, and 13. He says, We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. He picks up the sarcasm again. We are weak, but you guys, you are strong. You're held in honor, but, but we in disrepute. To the present hour we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and, dressed and buffeted and homeless. And we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. So you may be saying now, well, Brad, thank you for that rather serious description of how the apostles died, but that's the apostles, not us. But if you keep reading where, where Paul goes on in verse 16 and 17 there in the same chapter, chapter 4, he goes on, well, let's read in 14. He says, I don't write these things to make you ashamed, to sort of produce guilt in you. But I write these things to admonish you as my beloved children, for though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. And in verse 16, listen to this. After he just rolled out that he was, along with the other apostles, like men sentenced to death to be spectacles to the world, led into the arena so that the gospel would be on display through our suffering, he says, For I urge you then, be imitators of me. That is why I sent you Timothy, my beloved and faithful child and the Lord, to remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach them everywhere in every church. And so, is suffering only for Paul and the apostles? No. The Bible says that we clearly should imitate them. And so, this moves us now to this question. How does suffering serve to display God's goodness? Let me give you three thoughts on how suffering serves to display God's goodness. And before I roll out these thoughts, let me also say that uh, we need to probably define suffering here. I don't think that this implies that we should be like spiritual masochists. In other words, people that go after pain to prove ourselves. That was the air. There was these, you know, in the third century, uh, the, gospel, the, the church had been persecuted in the first century, second century, third century persecuted. And by the way, while it was persecuted, the church was growing rapidly, advancing as an underground church, spreading throughout the Roman Empire, churches being planted everywhere. And then there was this leader of the Roman Empire named Constantine who became the emperor and had, as legend has it, some sort of vision before a battle where he saw a cross. And then he evidently, to some degree, we're not really sure about his conversion because he did some pretty shady stuff after that, but he at least culturally becomes a Christian and confesses Christ. And so in an instant, the emperor of Rome, which up to that point was, and I'm, I'm really brushing over things pretty with some broad brushes here, but up to that point, Rome, which was, which was, uh, which was persecuting Christianity, all of a sudden became a Christian empire, and, and Constantine 
has like a million of his soldiers go down and be baptized in the river and goes and fights a battle and wins. And then all of a sudden the church went from being the persecuted church to the Roman imperial church. And now, you know, instead of being persecuted, humble apostles, their, their church leaders were wearing robes and going through all sorts of, you know, pomp and circumstance. And the church, really in the third century, we begin to see loses a lot of its power because it goes from being the persecuted church to the pampered church. And as a reaction to that, there were these people, men in the church called the Desert Fathers, who reacted against that and actually went out into the desert and began to beat themselves as a reaction to the excesses of the Roman church in the 3rd and 4th centuries. Now, what I'm, the point I'm making is, is that God used their sort of excessive reaction as a corrective element to the church. But when I talk about suffering, I'm not saying the, the end of this message is, all right, guys, let's go out and just make it miserable on ourselves. <laughs> let's do it. Come on, you ready? Ready? Break! And cue the cricket stripping. Nobody wants to do that. This message and this truth is for us because we realize we live in a world where we will endure suffering. And so when I talk about suffering, I'm talking not only about physical suffering, I'm not talking just about persecution for being a Christian. I'm talking about any manner of trial, whether it's emotional, physical, spiritual, whatever circumstance is that may come your way, it's a trial for you. The truth of this scripture is that God uses it in his good, sweet providence to display Christ in your life. And these are three, we, three ways that he does it. Number one, suffering teaches us to rely on God and not on ourselves. Suffering teaches us to rely on God and not on ourselves. Listen to what Paul says in his second letter to the Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Listen to this. He says, this is the one book over if you, if you want to flip there. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Have you ever been there that maybe just, you're just almost wishing that you die? Verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Listen to this. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Did you, do you see the truth and the power and the providence in that sentence? It says that this sentence of death and this trial that they were facing, says he says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Who, the dead. Do you realize this false self-help, health and wealth mentality that many American Christians have where sometimes you hear, oh, that didn't come from God. I don't claim that. I don't receive that. Any sickness, any pain, any trial, that must come from the devil. God never brings that. Well, this verse is saying that that was to make, it came to make you rely on God. Does the devil send sickness or trial into you to make you rely on God? No. Now the devil may be the minion that God uses to bring about his providence, but the devil can't start anything that God is not providential over. And so you need not wring your hands and say, is this because of some lack of faith? 
Is karma hitting me badly because I've sinned and now it's catching up with me? God is the author of everything and He is providentially good. He's never behind sin to destroy us, but He is over everything and He controls. And in this instance here, He is bringing this sentence of death to Paul to detach his hands from the things of this world and attach his hands to God. That, that will put steel in your spine and cause you to see and savor Jesus in the midst of a broken world where you will get sick, where things will not go your way. It teaches us to rely on God and not on ourselves. That is a good and gracious providence of God. Secondly, suffering stirs boldness and faith in others. Suffering stirs boldness and faith in others as they see us endure a trial. Listen to what Paul writes to the Philippians as he writes to them from prison. Chapter 1, verse 12. Philippians 1, verse 12, 13 and 14. He says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So what he's saying is, Philippians, is that my imprisonment, this trial, has actually served to advance the gospel. Isn't that counterintuitive? You'd think, well, couldn't Paul do more preaching freely, not in prison? But he has this perspective, the providence of God and the goodness of God, even in our trials, that this has happened to advance the gospel. Verse 13 so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest of my imprisonment that my imprisonment is for Christ. And so he's saying, praise God, I'm in prison. And now I get to witness to these two cats who, who, who got the key to my chains. Verse 14, and most of the brothers, listen to this now, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Doesn't that seem at face value sort of counterintuitive? Like, oh, our leader's now in prison. Maybe we should hush up and go underground. But it had the reverse effect. When you see somebody not denying Christ, even against much difficulty, that encourages the faith of the saints. So suffering stirs boldness and faith in others. And then I think probably most prominently, the third way that suffering serves to display God's goodness is suffering enables us to display that Christ is better than this world. Suffering enables us to display that Christ is better than this world. Go back to 2 Corinthians. It's a book after, again, we just read out of 2 Corinthians 1, now 2 Corinthians 4. Listen to this. This is the type of verse that you should highlight or underline. Look, don't be the type of people that are afraid to write in Bibles. Write in your Bible. Chew it up, man. Digest it. Chew on it. Eat it. Second Corinthians. In fact, one of the prophets in the Old Testament actually did that. I, mean, don't, I don't recommend eating your Bible, but you know what I'm talking about, figuratively speaking. And don't treat it like a you know, porcelain doll, man. Absorb the Word of God. This is, this is one that you should mark up right here. This is one you should circle, write on a card, memorize it. This is a verse you've got to know. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. This is how suffering enables us to display that Christ is better than this world. Paul writes, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show. Literally, what that means in the Greek is we have this treasure, which is the gospel, Christ, in these cracked pots. That's what jars of clay means. 
to show, to display that the surpassing power belongs to God and not us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. So that the life of Jesus may also be manifested or shown or displayed in our bodies. For we who live... Listen to this now. This is so beautiful. This is so God-centered. This is so unfocused on these 80 years. This is what verse 11 says. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that the life of Jesus, the gospel, the goodness, the sweetness of God, the life of Jesus also may be manifested or shown or displayed in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Verse 13, since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also speak, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise us with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So what he's saying here is we can endure trial Because we know that ultimately we are eternal beings that Christ will raise again. And this broken body that may be broken down with ailment and may die of cancer or may die of sickness is ultimately going to be right and perfect with Him in the end. Verse 15, he continues, For it is all for your sake, so that His grace extends to more and more people. It may increase in thanksgiving to the glory of God. So what he's saying is, as you're undergoing a trial, which is causing you to decrease... And Christ to increase so that it would be more of a display so more people can come to know Jesus and give thanksgiving and glorify God. Suffering enables us to display that Christ is better than this world. I end with this. You know how much I love Charles Spurgeon, the Baptist pastor in London in the mid-1800s. He wrote a little book called All of Grace. It's a compilation of some of his sermons. We're going to be selling it in the bookstore, and it would be a tremendously encouraging thing for a young Christian or an old Christian to read. Spurgeon writes this in one of his sermons that then became adapted into this book about the providence of God in suffering. He says, From the right hand of God, our Lord Jesus rules all things here below and makes them work together for the salvation of his redeemed. He uses both bitter and sweet things, trials and joys, that he may produce in sinners a better mind toward their God. Be thankful for the providence which has made you poor or sick or sad. For by all this, Jesus works the life of your spirit and turns you to himself. You see what Spurgeon is saying there? He's not saying wallow in that sadness or sickness. He's saying that it is the good, gracious hand of God to turn you away from that to himself. The Lord's mercy often rides to the door of our hearts on the black course of affliction. Jesus uses the whole range of our experience to wean us from earth and woo us 
to heaven. What a beautiful quote. Do you realize that right now God is using everything, success or failure, health or disease, riches or poverty, emotional joy or emotional distress, so that he might, as I quoted just a moment ago, J.I. Packer, so that he might detach our hands from the things of this world and attach those hands to himself. As Spurgeon puts it, to wean us from earth and woo us to heaven. Do you realize right now, Christian, that's what God is doing in every situation in our life? Do you realize, person who's not yet a Christian, that God is doing that right now in your life so that you might come to see Jesus? How do you become a Christian? You fill out a card, join a church, recite a prayer, respond to an altar call? No. Those things may be helpful things to do, and I don't want to disparage them. But this is how you become a Christian. You repent and believe in Jesus. You repent, which means you turn from self-trust, turn from sin, and trust in Christ alone. Do that right now, even as I'm speaking. Don't look underneath the ice of your heart to look for fire. Look to Christ and let Him save you. Have you heard the words that I've spoken today? Then that, I believe, is evidence that the Holy Spirit is bringing life to your heart and giving you the gift of faith so you might trust in Jesus. Do that right now. Turn from sin. Turn from self-righteous. Turn from moralism. Turn from trusting solely in your church or religious upbringing. And trust in Christ alone for your right standing. And then give your life away to Him as a response to His goodness for His glory in your joy. As the musicians come back, I'm going to pray and then we're going to receive communion together. Lord, thank you for these words from the Apostle Paul. Again, Lord, I... Well, I'm not going to generalize it here. I'll, I'll even confess personally that I am a pampered, selfish, self-absorbed person. That's my default position. I want things easy in my way. But Lord, in your graciousness, you bring tragedy and triumph my way so that you might remind me and show me that these 80 years here on this earth are not my ultimate home, but that you have made me for you. As St. Augustine, the early church father, said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you, O Lord. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters in this room, regardless of the circumstances of their life, that our lives would be marked with an imitation of Christ and his suffering and an imitation of the apostles and their suffering. Not to say, Lord, that we run into these things beating ourselves, running out into the desert, but that we would be people who have this unusual aroma about our lives 
that when triumph comes, we give you glory. And when tragedy comes, we give you glory. And in that giving you glory, we find the only joy that truly satisfies. God, would you do that today? Would you give us that perspective? Would you shake us from our missionless ways? Would you let us see Christ? Lord, for the non-believer in this room, would you right now, would you do a miracle? Would you bring a dead man or a dead woman back to life by the power of the gospel? Would you cause them to see Jesus and trust in him alone? And would you bring them back to life? And then, Lord, would you connect them to a Bible-believing church, whether it's this one or another one in our community? And would you let them flourish as they give their lives away to the King and the Creator of the universe? I pray these things in Jesus' good name. Amen.